Very delegate. I also sit on the uh, GPS um, AccredCom, which is the Accreditation Committee, and I also sit on the PCSC, which is the Presidential Campaign Support Committee. So um, the PCSC's role is basically to help the help award official recognition and basically keeping track of the candidates' progress and also basically be the communication hub for the candidates in the Green Party. So I want to thank all of our candidates for coming. We still have two that are not here with us today. That would be Ian and Sidenam. So, fortunately, they couldn't make it with us. But we have Howie Hawkins, we have Dario Hunter, uh, we have Dennis Roll and David Roll and Dennis Lambert. Sorry. Okay, so really quickly, we're going to go over the forum rules and procedures. statements of five minutes each, um, and basically in that opening statement they need to introduce themselves, and they also need to answer preferred content. So there are three questions in that preferred content. The first being, for over a hundred years after World War I destroyed the Socialist International, Socialists have been asking themselves if they should support imperialist wars. Green parties nominally oppose the war, but when Joschke Fischer became the first Green to enter Germany's cabinet, he supported the war against Yugoslavia, and the U.S. Greens were divided about whether they should criticize him. What specific actions do you think that Greens should take when an elected Green supports a capitalist war? Question two is, what policy ideas do you have for dealing with climate change? And three is, how do you advocate turning the country around from Trump's racism and coping with mass shootings? So they will have uh, five minutes to introduce themselves and answer those three questions. Um, and, and once that's done, we'll, we'll take questions from the audience, um, 90 seconds apiece. Uh, each candidate will have two minutes then to respond to that question, um, and then we'll have closing statements of about one minute each. Um, and I think we're supposed to be done here at about, what time does that say? 11 o'clock, so probably about 10.45 is when we'll call it, and call the last question, and then we'll go to closing statements. So. Um, I would like to give the floor right now to Howie Hawkins for his introduction. Good morning, sisters and brothers. Good morning. Thank you morning. for putting this forum on. A little bit about me. I'm a retired construction worker and teamster. I'm from Syracuse, New York. I've been active in what we call the movement back in the 60s, civil rights, anti-war. I've been active in unions, on the environment, and always through independent working class politics for democracy, socialism, and ecology. That's been a constant thing I think that's been missing in this country. I was a co-founder of the Anti-Nuclear Clamshell Alliance and the Anti-Apartheid Northeast Coalition for the Liberation of Southern Africa in the 70s. In 1980, I was invited as a member of the Clamshell Alliance for the first National Green Party organizing meeting in St. Paul, Minnesota in August 1984, and I've been active in the Green Party ever since. Greens have run me many times. I ran against Clinton for Senate, three times for governor in New York. We got ballot lines out of those three races. Uh, and I'm running this time, not because I was planning to. I was planning to be retired, read a couple hundred books, and maybe write one or two. But a lot of people asked me to run, and they really busted their ass. And I didn't see how I could say no. And we've come up with a campaign that has two basic purposes. The first is to advance the socialist program equal socialist green deal. The second purpose is to help build the green party. And 
that Eco-Socialist Green New Deal focuses on three life or death issues. The climate emergency, we talked about that last night. Uh, inequality, as I said, inequality kills the 20-year life expectancy gap. That's what's on people's minds. So we need an economic bill of rights, a job guarantee, guaranteed income above poverty, affordable housing by revitalizing public housing done the right way, and universal rent control, quality health care for everybody through a Medicare, improved Medicare for all system, a good public education, tuition free, pre-K through college, and a secure retirement. The first step is to double Social Security benefits. And then the third life or death issue that I hope brings to emphasize up and down the ticket is answer to this new nuclear arms race, which is an existential threat. I don't have time to explain what's going on, but we should demand immediately that the U.S. pledge no first use, unilaterally disarm to a minimum credible deterrent, and on that basis, begin negotiating to complete the 2017 Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. The party-building aspect, we want to get on all 51 ballots. The second thing is early qualification for matching funds so that by January 1st, when the money is first available, we can put that to use getting on the ballot and also helping Greens organize. We are good actors. People count on us. We're, we show up, but we're not so good at organizing the things the union and the community organizer knows and how to build a base, keep lists of names, stay in communication with them, and so on. So we want to, with what resources we can raise, provide training for our locals and our states so we can be better organized. I say the Green Party exists because we're needed, not because we organized it. You know, people get mad at the Democrats and then they run as Green, but we really don't have the kind of organization that we need. So, with the three questions, and I hope I can get through this in five minutes, uh, what do we do when the Greens support the capitalist war? Well, we oppose them, right? And we should withdraw support if it's a U.S. Uh, green, um, and we should educate Greens at home and abroad about how capitalism is an expansionist system that generates imperialism at war. We need a new system. We should be in solidarity with people fighting oppression. Right now, Algeria, Sudan, Hong Kong, people are on the move. We need to find a way to be in solidarity with people. We be in solidarity with struggling people. Not be part of supporting the less regal state versus U.S. imperialism or whatever it is because we don't have to make that choice anymore. We have to choose We need an international socialist revolution if we're going to deal with these life or death issues. Second question, climate change. I, I'll just say we need to elevate our frontline demand, a ban on fracking and fossil fuel infrastructure. That's the first step. If we don't do that, we're good. And the third question, mass shootings and Trump's racism. Okay. To deal with the racists, we got to take them from power. Starting with the racist defeat, Trump, need to impeach him. But racism, there are lots of racists with people with attitudes, but the dangerous ones are the ones with the power to discriminate and oppress and exclude and segregate. we got to take them from power by empowering communities of color to control their schools, their police, their businesses, so they make the decisions, not some racist ruling over them. And as for the mass shootings, we need to ban and buy back assault weapons. I mean, when I turn in my M16 as a Marine, I don't want that weapon on the street. Um, we need to increase federal monitoring of white nationalist terrorists for prevention. And I'm out of time. I had another point, but I'm out of time. All right. Thank you for having me here. My name is Dario Hunter, and I am a member of the Youngstown, Ohio Board of Education. 
I am a black, openly gay son of a Persian immigrant from a poor, working-class family in New Jersey. I'm a former environmental attorney. I serve as a rabbi in my community, and I'm an anti-fracking activist and an activist for Palestinian rights. I've been fighting against school takeovers in my district for years now because the public's voice is important in public education, and I happen to be the only elected Green in the state of Ohio. And my emphasis is that the Green Party is the party of justice, Justice for the earth and all its people. And towards that end, my campaign is going to be focused on equality issues, including healthcare and educational racism and the genocide taking place on our streets against people of color. We're going to be focused on ending corporate rule, folks, because corporations are not persons and people matter. We're going to be focused on climate change, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. And we're going to be focused on ending war, including nuclear proliferation. Now, towards that end of building up a party that can advance those people-centered, living being-centered issues, our party, party building efforts include an initiative called See Greens Lead, and our campaign has been supporting people seeking elected office as Greens across this country, in our backyard in neighboring Pennsylvania, but also in places like Indiana, California, all across this country. And that's what people need to see. If they see people leading as Greens locally, then they'll understand that our agenda is the only one that isn't bought out by the corporate interest and serves the best interest of the public. Now, in regards to these questions, it's very straightforward. What do you do when an elected Green supports a capitalist war? I have to agree with my colleague. You have to cut that person off. But as Greens, first you need to communicate. And we see a similar kind of issue taking place across the border up north with Elizabeth May and her position on the Alberta tar sands. They're having some very purposeful conversations with her to try to change her direction on that towards a more green direction, and I hope that they do. As Greens, we do have to come together, and even when we have a difference of opinion, help move each other and lead each other towards the right direction to move forward the environmental agenda and the anti-war agenda. When we talk about climate change, I support the Green New Deal, which includes 100% renewable energy, 20 million jobs, phasing out of fossil fuels, ending fracking, which in my community, that's a part of this fracking boom. It's very important to us. We've experienced massive earthquakes for our area. And of course, helping to fund and support issues like improved health care, single payer, universal health care, of course, cuts to the military, education, and public transit. But I think we need to go much farther than that. So I'm supporting something my campaign calls the Green Path Forward, because the problem is global. Our carbon footprint is global, and the U.S.'s carbon footprint is being exported. Greenpeace China pretty much said as much in a statement that what we are doing, all we are doing is shipping our carbon footprint over there. And it's got to stop. We have to stop, we have to stop taking this very myopic view of climate change and band together with countries all across the world for more fruitful relationships to solve these problems that we share. We have to end the use of single-use plastics, which we know is 13% of the total carbon budget in the Paris Agreement. We have to create zero-waste communities, and we need to introduce extended producer responsibility so the producers are responsible for the garbage they're putting out there. When we talk about how we turn this country around from Trump's racism and cope with mass shootings, as an African-American, this is something that's very personally sensitive to me. The first police force in this country was a fugitive slave retrieval force. We have a toxic gun culture in this country. And how do we attack that? We attack that through education. We attack that through stronger hate crimes legislation. We end the culture of permissiveness in regards to human rights abuses. You can't tell me that what's going on with racism in this country isn't connected to the culture.
cultural permissiveness that also allows people to feel comfortable putting children in cages, it has to stop. And we need to, we need to empower minority communities, including police oversight boards, so that the police themselves are police. We need to have community co-ops so that communities feel a sense of power in moving their own community forward. We need to end environmental and educational racism in our communities, and we need to end electoral racism. Predatory laws like voter ID laws meant to strike people off the roll so they cannot have power in their own system. And we need legislative solutions. Gun control. We have to ban assault weapons. We have to have background checks for all sales, including private sales, no loopholes. And we need to end the protection from liability for gun manufacturers so they can be sued for their dangerous products. And local communities should be able to have control over whether or not their safety issues are managed by their communities. It's got to stop this effort to disempower our local communities. So we support justice for all and empowerment for all communities. That's our campaign. Uh, good morning, Green Party comrades. So I'm, I'm here in Missouri. It's the fifth anniversary of the Ferguson Rebellion, which is very important. Uh, my name is David Gould. I'm an anti-war activist and an anti-imperialist communist revolutionary. I live near Boston on land stolen from the indigenous Massachusetts people. And I know that our event here in, in Springfield today is also on land stolen from indigenous people. I have been a member of the Green Party, the Green Rainbow Party of Massachusetts since 2003. Um, I've never been a Democrat or a member of any other party. Um, I serve on the Green Rainbow Party State Committee and I'm the Secretary of the Greater Boston Chapter of the Green Rainbow Party. Um, I'm seeking the Green Party U.S. presidential nomination. My platform is to totally eliminate the U.S. military and weapons industry. The the U.S. military serves absolutely no positive purpose. Everything it does is destructive. Cutting the U.S. military budget by 50% or even 75% is not enough. That would still leave hundreds of billions of dollars every year budgeted to fund genocide. The world can't survive many more years of, US military, of the U.S. military wreaking social and environmental destruction. My platform is to shut down the U.S.A. The so-called USA is an illegitimate white nationalist settler colony on stolen land. The USA was built on slavery, genocide, and war, and it is a capitalist empire that is destroying the world. Um, I am for decolonization, reparations, and self-determination for Africans, indigenous people, and all oppressed peoples. That is my solution for climate change. Climate change is caused by greedy white nationalist imperialist capitalism. We must turn over all the resources and power to Africans and indigenous people who we stole the resources from. When people who don't have a white nationalist capitalist mindset are in power, they will find a solution for how to deal with climate change. I would add that we also need to stop the geoengineering, weather warfare, and chemtrails. I, I also support Palestine. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. We must stop all funding to the Zionist entity. So-called Israel is an illegitimate white settler colony on stolen land, just like the USA. The Zionist entity must be shut down. I, I also support 9-11 truth. The 9-11 attacks in New York City and the Pentagon were a false flag perpetrated by people from the Zionist and US regimes. Muslims did not do 9-11. Um, 
I was um, asked to talk about what should we do when Green Party officials support capitalist wars, such as the German Green Party supporting the war on Yugoslavia. If I, if I lived in Germany, I would not be in the Green Party. The German Green Party is just another mainstream imperialist party. The, the, the Green Party of the U.S. is different. There is revolutionary potential in the Green Party of the U.S. The GPUS is generally anti-war, but we still need to struggle within the GPUS to maintain and strengthen our anti-imperialist, anti-war stance. We need to oppose U.S. imperialist regime change wars. The U.S. carries out regime change wars by vilifying popular progressive anti-imperialist governments of countries that the U.S. wants to overthrow. The U.S. capitalist falsely accuse the governments of, of human rights abuses and call their leaders dictators. The regime change wars proceed with economic warfare of sanctions and blockades. The, and the U.S. regime covertly sends in armies of mercenaries and sectarian extremists to invade each country targeted for regime change. My fellow candidates, Howie Hawkins and Dennis Lambert, say they are against regime change wars, but they don't seem to understand the concept. Howie Hawkins calls the president of Syria a dictator. Howie's activism on Syria has only been focused on trying to overthrow the Syrian government, not on stopping the U.S. regime change war on Syria. And today, just now, Howie said he supports the U.S.-backed phony protests in Hong Kong. Uh, Dennis Lambert, who is a nice guy, I happened to criticize them, told me that he was in the U.S. military in the 1990s and that he wishes that he had been deployed to Yugoslavia because he thinks the U.S. military intervention in Yugoslavia was a good stabilizing thing. I tried to explain to Dennis that the war on Yugoslavia was a regime change war against the socialist country and that it didn't stabilize it split Yugoslavia into seven countries, but Dennis doesn't get it. Um, Jario Hunter has listened to me call to totally eliminate the military and then he says he wants a 50% cut. So I'm, I'm out of time, I'll get back to the stuff <laughs> Are you recording from the microphone? Are you recording from the microphone? Because I don't need the microphone. I, I took theater classes, so I think I can fill my voice up with this room without... Echo. Uh, <laughs> Let me not do the mic? Yes. Okay, that's fine. Uh, I'm Dennis Lambert. Uh, many of you don't know me because I, I'm not very uh, a very public person. Uh, I, I prefer to stick to myself as well as you know, work behind the scenes building coalitions. Uh, for the last six years, I worked for a nonprofit organization helping veterans find employment, connecting other resources in their community to help them overcome individual barriers to help them raise their self-esteem to support their families. I got uh, eight veterans back into college and 92 veterans into work, and over the six years, those uh, 92 veterans together earned over $300 million uh, for their communities. Uh, I didn't want to put guys into work that just to support themselves, because I believe uh, in a, a living wage. Uh, my father was uh, part of the Plumbers Union in uh, Columbus, Ohio, Local Union 189. I'm a uh, member of the UFCW uh, in Columbus 1159. Uh, I also have a, a long history of uh, environmental work. Uh, my Eagle Scout project 
was one uh, where I educated my uh, local community about recycling, and this was in the 1990s. Uh, when I went back to college in uh, the mid-2010 or so, uh, I started a recycling program at Ohio University, and our first year we saved over 20 tons of paper trash alone. Uh, that program, the second year, we integrated a paper reduction system within the university, and our paper waste was only reduced by 17 tons, and we got a lot of questions about that, but when we pointed out that our overall waste was, was reduced by 35 tons, uh, they, they finally started seeing what the picture was really about. Uh, I became involved in the, with the Green Party in 2010 when I graduated college with my bachelor's degree. Uh, I reached out to the Democrats and the Republicans and said, hey, I want to make a difference in my community. What can I do? What can you tell me? Give me direction what I can do. And none of them got back to me. As uh, somebody who's been very politically active, I decided, you know, this is the opportunity for me to reach out to other parties. So I reached out to the Communists, I reached out to the Constitutionalists, I reached out to the Libertarians, and I reached out to the Greens. The only one that got back to me was the Green Party. They said they were trying to build a democracy in Ohio, and they needed people to run for office. They asked me if I would be willing. I said I'd never thought about it, but give me a day or two, and I'll think about it, and I decided to. Uh, in my first campaign, I spent about $700. I got a vote for 38 cents. I got 3.2% of the vote in that campaign, spending only my own money. Then I ran again in 2014. Same, same thing, instead of for the State House, this time I was running for Congress. I spent only about $1,500. My increase uh, for the votes went up. I, I spent about 78 cents per vote, and I still got 3.2% of the vote. Compared to the Democrat and the Republican running, they spent over $100 per vote. Uh, I'm also very active with a lot of different organizations, the Ohio Valley Environmental Coalition. I was a uh, member of their membership board for a number of years, the Southeastern Ohio NAACP, Normal, uh, Toxic Prisons, uh, and a lot of different other organizations that uh, I firmly believe in a, a social equality. Uh, I believe that we are all put on this planet to serve a purpose, and that purpose is to help one another. Uh, we don't get any farther by stepping on each other's necks. It may change the perspective that we're seeing, but it doesn't help us, and it doesn't help the people that we're working with. Now, um, as far as the, uh, the issue with uh, supporting Greens and the capitalist war, I, honestly, uh, I was probably one of a number of uh, pacifists in, in the military. Uh, Believe me, a lot of us who, who have uh, participated in the military did it for a higher purpose, that we wanted to serve our country. Not everybody that joins the military is there to do it because of guns. I grew up poor. My family grew up on food stamps. I'm one of five kids. And I saw military services, two things. One, to put me through college, and two, to give back to the country that helped raise me. So... Uh, I still am anti-war completely, and in fact, that's part of my platform. Uh, hopefully, I'll get into some of my specific policies on climate change, and just being friends to people help, will help us overcome a lot of this friction that we have with Trump and racism.
Alright, so we are going to go ahead and take uh, questions from the audience. So if you have a question, just go ahead and stand up and make sure to um, say it loud and concisely so everyone can hear you. And uh, th these questions posed, we're going to have every single one of the uh, candidates answer. So go ahead, Joe. One of the biggest problems I see that we have is community, lack of community. We have been atomized by all the policies, by all the propaganda, by every system that we have. In order for us to make the biggest change, we have to figure out some way to come, bring back and come back into community. How do you propose that we do that? Well, we have a very uh, competitive culture generated by capitalism and the education system. So I think one thing we need to do to build community and solidarity amongst ourselves is to change the education system. It's based on these high stakes tests uh, starting in New York in kindergarten and they track people and you get the wrong score when you're in kindergarten and you sit on the wrong track for the rest of your life. You get to high school in New York City, two thirds of the high schools don't have physics. Uh, every school should have every uh, both vocational and academic options and people should be able to do uh, you know both. I did both in high school. I did you know carpentry and I did college prep and I went to Ivy League school and ended up a carpenter and I you know that was good. It was the kind of options everybody should have. And then capitalism you know Trump epitomizes it. You know it's all winners and losers and everybody he's against is a loser. That kind of culture uh, is generated by what we do at work. Uh, Look at the way bosses treat us, you know, they, they try to divide and rule us, you know, and uh, you compete for promotions, and you're not supposed to, it's illegal in some places to even tell other people what you're making, and uh, so what we need to work towards is a cooperative, socially owned, democratic economy, and that will, uh, as we were talking about last night, uh, some things are epiphenomenons of others, and you know, we can exhort ourselves at church or wherever we go or, you know, civic organizations to be in community, but when the whole system throws us apart, we got to change the system. So, it's a big topic, and that's a short answer, but that's all i got time. <laughs> how we put communities back together speaks to how we put back together the American psyche as a whole. People are tired. They're tired of the BS they're being fed, they're underpaid, they're underappreciated, they're treated as subhuman, especially our people of color in this country. So how do we change that paradigm? We give communities back the power that they should have always had. When we talk about education, we can't just send out educational fiats from on high. Communities have to be engaged in shaping the educational future. In communities like mine, where we're subject to a state takeover, this is all the more important. We have classrooms without textbooks, without materials, and it is because in this majority-minority school district, they don't feel it's necessary that it's needed. We need to bring truth to power. So we have to empower communities to be able to move themselves forward. We need to establish community co-ops in places, for instance, where there are food deserts. We need to give communities control over things like policing so that they don't have to fear in their own streets. And we as a party have to go where we have never gone before. I'm tired, personally, of sitting around the table with my fellow Greens in my local area where I am a leader in the Mahoney County Green Party and seeing the same faces, wonderful faces, all active for many decades. 
but not new people, not enough young people, and not enough people of color because people are not going outside of their comfort zones. We have to go where the people are. The Democratic Party has colonized black churches all over our area and all over this country. They have colonized your local pastor. They've colonized every community organization. And we have to go in and show them there is a different, a different way of thinking and a different way of organizing as a community. And we need, of course, democratic reform because too many people feel intimidated by going to the ballot box because they've been cheated out of the opportunity to do so by things like voter ID laws. Once we get people in the driver's seat, then we'll have empowered communities where we can actually build up this effort to reshape our country democratically, environmentally, and in terms of social justice together. Yes, so when we see um, divisions and atomization, we need to think about what are the important issues, what is really going on, and we need to, to focus on uniting around the key issues, and we need to ignore issues that like are distractions that aren't important. We need to focus on, on class politics more than on identity politics. Like when we talk about issues of transgender people, we need to connect that with class politics, we, we, we shouldn't focus on, on, like, on issues of wealthy white transgender people and saying that their struggle is as difficult as the struggle of poor black people. We, we need to instead focus on, on like, you know, poor black and working class and oppressed transgender people and how, how their communities can, can unite with them to fight against the oppression together and not have, have that divide them. Uh, I think the, the greatest thing that we can do to build a party is outreach not only to the communities of color and minority communities, but also reaching out to conservatives. I, I, I mentioned this at the annual national meeting in, in Salem, and I have to reiterate it here again that a lot of conservatives share the values of the Green Party. You just have to frame it in a situation that they will understand and take to their heart. I campaigned this week in front of two Republicans in Kentucky. Both of them, neither one of them flinched when I mentioned that I'm running on a $25 an hour minimum wage. First one said, well, that sounds like a pretty good idea. And I said, well, let me explain. He said, no, I understand. I said, well, a lot of these guys that are coming out of the factories are making $35, $40 an hour. In most states that still have the $7.25 an hour federal minimum wage is not enough to support a family, especially if they have a house payment. So we need to reach out to minority communities. Conservatives, we need to start going to schools. We need to start educating with ballots. Take, take in voter registration to schools and educate the younger generation about what green values are. Go to your county and state fairs. A lot of Parties will set up a booth at those county and state fairs. Imagine how much traffic you would get from the curious people who said, Oh, I've heard about the Green Party. They spoil the Democrats, so maybe I should vote for them. We, this is something that we, we can address head on because I guarantee you some disgruntled Republicans won't vote for a Democrat no matter what. But you might be able to convince them not to vote for the Republican and possibly vote for the Green. There is a lot of wiggle room there. I've seen it in every campaign that I run because I've run in the whitest congressional district in the United States. Ohio 6 is the whitest congressional district, and I still got 3.2% in that campaign. All right, do we have another question?
Um, Steve, go ahead. Uh, a, few, a few candidates uh, drove down from Kansas City or St. Louis. You passed through the agricultural lands of Missouri. Uh, those people that live here are in a sacrifice zone. You know, it's an economic, environmental, and social sacrifice zone. Uh, their own representatives just passed a law, Senate Bill 391, that curbed their uh, ability to have local control over CAFOs and, and environmental issues locally, and now it's uh, in the hands of the state. My question is, what kind of agricultural uh, policies would you, uh, you know, put forth uh, to help those people in the rural areas? Because our, our people that run here in Missouri are going to have to face those people and ask for their votes. What can we offer them? Good question. Good question. is that local control is so vitally important. It's important whether we talk about education, it's important whether we talk about oil and gas, because in Ohio we're facing both of those issues with state preemption, the state attempting to take control away from communities for capitalist, profit-based interests. They've told us in our attempt to ban fracking in our community that we don't have the ability to do that because of state preemption. And so this is a larger democratic reform battle where we give power back to the people in local communities that are affected most by these issues. When we talk about agriculture, I have to point out the fact that the Green New Deal, part of our larger green path forward, is something that includes an agricultural component, including stimulating sustainable and organic agriculture, and that's something that we must do. Instead of subsidizing agriculture for capitalist purposes in this country, we should subsidize agriculture that's going to move us forward sustainably and move forward communities. But when we talk about the specific bill, Senate Bill 391, basically stripping local control over those issues. This is a part of a larger democratic struggle. We have to make sure that those communities, agricultural communities, uh, citizens as a whole dealing with educational issues, citizens dealing with oil and gas issues, fighting against fracking, that they have the level of empowerment and the democratic power and choice that they need in order to have control and say over their communities. So I stand with all those who are fighting those kinds of efforts. I stand with those who are seeking the revitalization of their communities agriculturally. The Green New Deal has provided for provisions in that regard in terms of greater stimulation and jobs. And the Green Party is offering the brightest corporate, corporate control-free future for agriculture as well as every other sector of endeavor in this country, including our educational advancement forward and our ending of the domination in this country by fossil fuels and corporate profit. Okay, well, um, first, I'm, I'm for, for banning um, GMOs I'm, and shutting down Monsanto or whatever it's called now. I, I um, helped organize the Boston March Against Monsanto for several years. For, you know, I'm a communist. I'm for economic human rights for everybody. Like, um, you know, everyone has a right to, to housing and a, a basic income and and food and medical care, etc., and um, you know that that should extend to to farmers having a right to be able to to farm on their land. And so I'm I'm against like big agriculture, but I I'm definitely supportive of, of doing things to support um, small farmers and organic farming. And I think it's, it's very important, and it, it can fit into the the whole economic human rights thing.
as uh, somebody who uh, has farmed in the past, I raise chickens now and have a, a 3,000 square foot uh, garden. So I'm pretty aware of, of the fluctuations of the seasons as well as when it's time to plant, when it's time to harvest. Once again, this is an issue that conservatives will join us on. Do you want the state house telling you what you can grow, how you can grow it, and how long you can grow it? No, you want us, the Greens, to give you the power to be able to say, hey, I want to create a sustainable farm. I want to be able to farm without chemicals. One of the biggest things about the uh, organic labeling now is, is a lot of these smaller farms are finding it tough to get that organic label because of the financial burdens that are placed on them to achieve these goals and pay these exorbitant fees just to get the label of organic when they know that they're treating the soil right, they're treating their animals right, and they're treating the plants right. Uh, we have to go back to a more naturalistic way of growing. Uh, I don't know if you guys knew this, but about uh, two months into the growing season this year, uh, only 20% of the crops were planted. Uh, along with the tariffs that uh, Trump has put on China, we're going to basically have uh, a weak surplus of, of food here in the United States because of the additional... Uh, in Europe, they won't buy GMO foods off of us. And now China, uh, last week, said that they won't buy any agricultural products off of us. That was about 25% of the U.S. market. Now... <laughs> I don't know about you, but it doesn't make sense to me that uh, we should be su subsidizing farmers who are already, uh, especially these large corporate farms, who are, aren't able to manage their land properly. We need to adapt to the previous standards that we, we saw during the Depression era of uh, successful land use management. Green New Deal's agricultural program, like the first New Deal's program, uh, really focused on agriculture back in the 30s, and we need to do the same thing now. Is this on? I think you need to put it a little bit closer. Shake it. Shake it. <laughs> <laughs> so, the first thing we need to do is support working farmers with full parity and supply management, not just the commodities like corn and soy, the industrial commodities, but fruits, vegetables, dairy, so small farmers can earn a living income above their cost of production. We need the federal ban on corporate farming. North Dakota has it for their states. Some states have limits. We need a federal ban on corporate farming. Farming should be for working farmers. Uh, we need to subsidize the transition to organic agriculture. We need to phase-in bans on biocides, herbicides, pesticides, and phase-in organic agriculture with uh, support from federal government and the agriculture program. We need a program to put new farmers on the land. Immigrants, these people from Mexico and Central America are here because they got pushed off their land. And they want to farm. I work with them in upstate New York. They work on the dairy farms. What they really want to do is take over because a lot of those white families' kids don't want to farm anymore. So we need to find a way to get them back on the land. And, you know, there's an old idea in the socialist movement about reintegrating town and country. And part of the rural reconstruction program should be to put Green New Deal factories that produce clean goods with zero waste onto uh, these rural areas so that we're rebuilding an integrated economy, an integrating urban and rural kind of economic activities. And I think that's the way... Oh, and the other thing is the Greens, look, 
The Democrats have written off rural America. The Greens could be the second party immediately. And by advancing the kind of program I'm talking about, I think we can overtake the Republicans, who don't look out for the average people. They look out for the rich corporate farmers and the people that fund their campaigns. All right. Zay is up next, and then I'll have you three on staff. I, I, think, I think she was next. Zay, thanks. It's fine. She was the first. We're going to let moderator handle it. Zay had his hand up last round. That's why I'm... <laughs> I stood up last time, too. Um, so my question is where you folks stand on boycott, divestment, and sanctions in regards to Israel. Um, and I'm particularly interested in uh, Dario's response, because I know that uh, you, uh, your synagogue broke with you over the Palestinian issue. But also, um, before that, uh, you wrote an op-ed in 2009 calling investigation of academic connections to Israel witch hunt. 2014, there's a quote from Windsor Star News, um, call it where you called the video Occupation 101, Voices of the Silence Majority, Indoctrination. And in 2018, there's a uh, national Chief's uh, Peace Action Committee proposal to endorse a uh, letter to the International Criminal Court to investigate Palestine, and the proposal passed 75 to 2, and you were one of the, the two no's. So I'm interested in. Um, just kind of explain your position on that and where your change of heart came in, just a little bit more there, and then everybody else, where do you guys stand on, on this issue? Who was that post, Jim? Uh, Dario. We'll start with you. Thank you. Since most of that was really personally directed towards me, I appreciate starting with that first. Uh, you mentioned a number of different positions taken more than 10 or so years ago, uh, probably around the same time as I also thought I was straight, which is very much not the case. <laughs> uh, I also at the time thought I was an Orthodox Jew and was never going to eat anything that wasn't in, you know, not segregated meat and dairy pots and a lot of different things. And I think the bottom line of that is that people change, especially when they realize that they're wrong. And you need to know the integrity of the person that you're dealing with, whether or not they're a straight dealer with you, whether or not they can listen to you, whether or not they can recognize that they're wrong. And I think that's been the case over many times in my life because I happen to be this wonderful thing called human. Uh, realizing that you're wrong and then doing better and committing to do better as a human being is what we as a party are yeah. to do for. And I'm actually representative of that because of the fact that after those years of realizations of standing shoulder to shoulder eventually with Palestinian people, recognizing the common humanity that we have, I in effect lost not everything but a heck of a lot. I'm pretty much blacklisted from the rabbinical profession because I stood up and said that Israel is a human rights abuser, that what they're doing to the Palestinians is atrocious, and that it has to stop. I lost my job as a national story, an international story. I'll probably never get a rabbinical job again. So I don't think anyone doubts my commitment to that particular cause. As for the recent GPS proposal, I read that proposal, and as a lawyer, I found it seriously insufficient. It cited online articles as sources for something that was actually supposed to be legally sourced and sent to a prosecutor. It actually downplayed the length of the Nakba, saying it started at the beginning of the State of Israel, when in fact they were inflicting those abuses against the Palestinian people before it happened, and it was planned, folks. They planned it. So you have to actually represent the cause you're representing with facts. You have to do so strongly and with a pro proper professionalism. And I really wish they would have consulted me before they did so with my legal background, because I could have helped with that. But what they put forward was not sufficient, and so I voted no on it. And I'm going to continue to support the cause of Palestinians and human rights causes all across this world, even at a personal cost to myself, whether or not I ever get another job again, because my number one job is supporting the rights of human beings. And that's what I'll do as your candidate. Okay, well, I, I, I sort of 
already in my opening statement. I've been a, a pro-Palestine, anti-Zionist activist pro protesting against Israel for 16 years, and um, I'm, I'm for all funding to Israel, total boycott of Israel, and I, I want it shut down. I have an anti-colonial perspective, not, not a civil rights perspective on Palestine. So I'm going to try to answer the question about Donald Trump's racism in the mass shootings. Um, Trump is not the problem. Donald Trump is not the problem. The USA is a, a white nationalist settler colony. Um, that's the mindset here. Trump rants against immigrants because that gets him votes from many white people. Um, the, we should deal with the mass shootings, including police shootings of black people, by um, shutting down the weapons industry, disarming the police, removing the colonial occupation, police force from black communities, instituting black community control of the police. Um, you know, we're in Missouri, it's the weekend of the fifth anniversary of the Ferguson Rebellion. It's, it's time. We need to stop the war against black people. We need to pay reparations to African people. We need black power. Uh, I absolutely agree that we need to boycott divest from anything associated with the Israeli government. Um, they are absolutely uh, violating human rights on a daily basis. Uh, I, I, the only reason our military is currently uh, messing around in Syria and Yemen is at the behest of Israel. In fact, uh, that and George Bush, George Bush's eagerness to get uh, revenge for 9/11 and uh, somebody threatening his daddy is the only reason why we were and still are in Iraq. Yeah. Uh, Honestly, we need to make Israel step up and take responsibility for their security, but at the same time, we need to make sure that they're not violating the human rights of those people who are living under their protection, which they are doing on a daily basis, and that's funded by American tax dollars. While they're spending our money to kill thousands of people over there on a yearly basis and provide free health care, we're stuck with the misery and, and the immigration problems that are caused by that. Honestly, we, we, the best way forward is, is to remove all funding from Israel, make them stand on their own two feet, then they won't have the weapons to, to kill all these Palestinians and other people throughout the area. Yeah, I support boycott, divest, sanctions against Israel. I think the best way to do that is escalating sanctions. We've been giving Israel a blank check since the Clinton administration. I mean, we weren't always good on that question, but, you know, George Bush the first withheld $11 billion in a loan guarantee until uh, Israel promised not to expand West Bank settlements and get into a peace negotiation, and it worked. Eisenhower stopped the invasion of Israel with France and the U.K., to take over the Suez Canal from Egypt back in the 50s by threatening to withdraw all military aid to the UK and France as well as Israel. It worked. Yep. Uh, so we can play a better role, and I think the first thing we need to do is cut off all military aid immediately. Yep. That's what the National BDS Committee in Palestine is saying should be our top priority. Let's start with that and you know tell Israel why. And I think that's how we might could play a constructive role in helping uh, Israeli-Palestinian settlement being negotiated that is satisfactory to all sides. 
I think we need to draw from the experience of the anti-apartheid movement. It's very analogous. The sanctions against South Africa worked. Yes. And what was common with the situation in Palestine is that it was demanded by the broad masses of the people. Different from sanctions we impose on countries all the time from the top down by imperialist interests. So that's what's going on, and we should support that. And I think uh, we can play a constructive role by doing that and checking Israel and forcing some kind of peace process that right now is dead in the water. And, uh, you know, that's the best I think we can do at this point. But start with the military sanctions immediately. Just cut off the military aid and say, we need to talk. All right, we are going to go with you right there, and then after you, we're going to go with uh, Paul, is it? Yes, then we're going to go with Paul, then Don, then Elise. Okay, go ahead. Um, excellent. Uh, so, humor me. If we could kind of start on the outside and work our way in, that'd be great. Uh, my question is, how do you exemplify um, intersectionality within the party? And if you got the nomination, what would you do to promote diverse voices? Who do you want me to start with? Kind of start on the outside and work our way in. Okay, let's go ahead. Dennis. Dennis. Dennis, sorry. I'm Dennis. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> That's Dario. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, uh, I, uh, I'm well aware of my family's immigrant history. Uh, just over 100 years ago, parts of my uh, grandfather's, my mother's father's family were chased out of southern Ohio for being too German. Prior to that, several of them were not able to get employment because they were Irish. Uh, I myself, uh, I, I'm named after a black man who's my, my godfather, and I, I have accepted them as my family as much as blood as anybody else. Uh, I believe that the best answers come through diversity, and that we certainly do need to reach out to, once again, I, I say communities, that are minorities as well as people of color, we need to show them that we are there for them as well as we want their support for our issues as well as we can support them with their issues. Uh, showing commonality, being a friend to people, that's the best way to make a friend. And as I said with the, the Trump and racism thing, is, is just to reach out and start making those connections. Some people may feel racist because they don't know enough people of that color or of that race or of that whatever artificial title that we throw on each other. You know, we're all from Africa genetically. So really, we need to look at each other more as humans than as race or other. But we have to also recognize that that is where these people, and I'm not saying this as a generic term, is where people come from, their, their color, and their race and their background, their their class, is very much a, a part of who we are. And we have to accept people for all races, all classes, and show that we support them by, through our issues and through our actions. Okay. Well, um, first of all, I, I don't I don't really. I don't really use the perspective of talking about intersectionality. I'm more focused on, on class analysis. But having said that, um, while I come from a while I'm white and I come from a pretty privileged background, I I have a lot of disability issues. I have anxiety, and I, I don't 
I have trouble relating to people and I'm not good at public speaking. This is difficult for me. I'm not really neurotypical and I, I do a lot of um, disability rights organizing with disability rights organizations and in particular I work on opposing um, physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia because um, people in, in wheelchairs and other people are really concerned that the, um, the move for euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide is going to be used to, to kill them. People, people with disabilities here all the time. I wouldn't want to live if I had that disability like you and it's really difficult for them. Already hearing this from medical professionals and when they go to the doctor and um, you know, this issue also has a, a class basis because um, people in, in Oregon and Washington where they have legalized physician-assisted suicide are getting, and California, are getting um, letters from their insurance companies, we won't pay for your, your chemotherapy that your doctor ordered, but we would pay for assisted death to, to kill you. So I'm, I'm against like doctors killing people. It's just a way to deny people health care and help that they need to live. Thank you for that question. As a coordinator for intersectional programming at the College of Worcester, and also as someone who is black, gay, son of a Persian immigrant, raised Muslim, and became a Jewish rabbi, I guess that's an easy answer. How do you exemplify intersectionality? It's true. I do live in, in the intersection of many different, many different kinds of experiences. But what you have to recognize is that when we talk about discrimination and inequality in this country, it isn't just a linear conversation. Discrimination for being black, discrimination for being female. What about the intersections in that discrimination? For, for example, an African American female, and therein lies how we solve the problem of inequality in this country. Recognizing the many ways in which it intersects, and also recognizing how even with those intersections, there's so much that we have in common. Uh, just a number of months ago, I sat down with, with Reim Hazan, who was the campaign manager for the Hadash Party, which is a uh, Palestinian citizen and Jewish party in Israel. We had a conversation in Haifa, and that conversation ranged on a number of different issues, from BDS, which they officially as a party are not allowed to support, although I made it clear, I do, and I do because of that intersection of different identities and the experience I've had experiencing racism, but even in that, you have to recognize that even with the intersection of diverse identities, you still have privilege. So I was walking around in a place like Israel and being stopped by the police and putting, people putting guns in my face as a person of color, the way that I look, and yet they would look at the ID, recognize that I'm Jewish, and let me go. And you always wonder, what would happen past that point? When you recognize the fact that past that point for someone else, horrible consequences could ensue, that's when you begin this conversation about what we all have in common. So recognizing the intersections is important, but past that conversation, once you've done that, you also have to recognize the privileges that we all, one way or another, have, and how we use that to the benefit of mankind. Our conversation talked about things like education, and that difference between the haves and the have-nots that she experienced, very much like what was happening in my community. So the question is, after recognizing the intersections, after recognizing the diversity issues, how do we all work together to uplift all human beings? My campaign exemplified intersectionality before I was even a candidate because the draft Howie committee was very diverse. Black people like Bruce Dixon who's no longer with us, Latinx people like Matt Gonzalez, the almost mayor of San Francisco, a whole lot of people. And I couldn't say no to them. And But I said we're going to run as a collective leadership 
collective project so that everybody's point of view is in there. And we're trying to realize that in a campaign. We're trying to practice active solidarity with oppressed people. And we talk about outreach, but sometimes brings outreach as missionaries rather than going and finding out what's going on and listening. So we're trying to do that. I'm meeting with the organizations of oppressed groups, you know, the African People's Black Panther Party in Newark. Or there's a black political prisoners dinner I'm going to in New York City. I've been invited to speak at an Indian powwow fighting the Enbridge Line 5 infrastructure up in northern Michigan. And I'm prioritizing those kinds of activities so we can build relationships of solidarity. And the other thing is, uh, when we talk about intersectionality, sometimes the class politics gets put on the back burner. And we have to realize that 70% of the working class in this country is people of color and, and female. And so that when we talk about working class politics, you know, some people envision some white guy like me that was a teamster. We're the minority in the working class. And when we do class politics, we have to understand that and realize we won't have class unity until we defeat racism within the class, sexism within the class, and all the negativisms that divide us and let the ruling class oppress us. against each other and they're not going to let us win. I mean, I don't want us 
to be a protest candidate. I'm just pointing out the reality that that Jill Stein, Cynthia McKinney, Ralph Nader, David Cobb, people, people, voters voted for them as a protest against this, these phony elections because we won't participate in their drama of picking a Democrat or a Republican. So, um, as a, a protest candidate, we know we aren't going to win it. Like, gives us an opportunity to to speak out for a more radical change versus a candidate who's like trying to fit in and get elected and fit into the system and try to nudge a little bit. We can like say it like it is. That, that's how I feel. change anything about my campaign because my campaign is about the people and restoring balance to the system that is already screwed up. I mean, we can't, as Ralph Nader said, we can't spoil something that's already rotten. You know, certainly, uh, I have no delusions of grandeur that I could possibly run away with the election. Uh, but my goal, one of my goals in, in running is to encourage other people who never thought about running to run. I mean, there's as, as somebody who came from a, a broken family, one of five kids raised by a single mother, I'm the last person in the world anybody would expect to run for president. Uh, I want to be an example for other people to run in every office, everywhere, at every time. Because until we get more people who are running for the people as opposed to running for a party and running to gain power from another party, then we're not going to see any true democratic change in our nation. We need to encourage people to run on the green ballot line, because I know in my state of Ohio, there are plenty of people who are running unopposed as Democrats, and there are plenty of them running unopposed as Republicans. But if you get a green candidate in there, you're going to get 20, 30, maybe, you might even win the vote. So, honestly, I'm not going to change my campaign just because somebody else has a better chance to win than I, I do, because... My beliefs are firmly rooted in what is equal and fair for everybody. Well, I think if it's Joe Biden versus Bernie Sanders, we might have to tweak the messaging a little bit. Now, I fundamentally change the, the program. If it's Joe Biden, there's more possibility for what we call the Dem Exit in 2016. You know, I worked with Jill Stein to appeal to Sanders and even offer him place on the ticket he break with the Democrats. Noah Bernie since 1972 and watching his career, uh, he wasn't going to do that. Um, but uh, I don't think Jill endorsed Democratic candidates. I think it was an appeal to the base of the Sanders campaign, which I think is good. I've actually got some Gravel people in my campaign because he's reached the end of his ropes. I think we need to do that with those progressive Democrats. If it's a corporate Democrat like Joe Biden, that's the approach. If it's Bernie Sanders, I think, you know, voters have the last say. Trump got elected despite the Republican establishment. Bernie might get in there. Then we got other messages. Like, if Bernie's talking about socialism, let's talk about socialism. Social ownership and democratic administration and economy. Bernie don't talk about that. He got bad positions on anti-imperialism and anti-militarism. We can provide an alternative. Now, the reality is, whoever it is, the Democrats should crush Trump. Trump's high, you know, averaging 40% approval. They got a 20% lead to start. And if they would impeach his sorry ass and, and beat him up, they could really crush him. So there's plenty of room for the Greens to get a lot of votes. Although it's going to be tough given this climate. Um, I think we keep emphasizing our issues, you know, the Green New Deal, the Economic Bill of Rights, nuclear disarmament. I think that's unique what the Greens 
can bring into the 2020 campaign on that nuclear weapons question. We've got to focus on building the Green Party so we're ready in 2020. If the Democrats come to power, they're going to disappoint progressives, and it's time for us to step up. If they can't beat Trump, they can't do anything, and we got to step up. So we got we just got to keep plowing forward. And uh, the messaging will change a little bit, but I think the fundamental approach will remain the same. How would I conduct my campaign if it was Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders, and how would I do it differently? First of all, whether it was Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders, I would knock those corporate shills out of the box. <laughs> Joe Biden is a segregationist collaborator. Bernie Sanders fell in line with Hillary when the time came for him to make a stand. He got on TV and said, when they asked him about how he's a millionaire now, I made a million and you can too. It sounds like a 3 a.m. infomercial to me. That's not socialism. Hashtag not socialism. He doesn't support civil rights genuinely. When you ask him about reparations, he says no on that. He was on the Breakfast Club. He was asked about that pointedly. Our campaign supports reparations. It supports dealing with the after effects of 400 years of slavery, Jim Crow, oppression, which we're commemorating this year, by the way. Yes, Bernie Sanders cannot stand on those issues because he, like all of the rest of them, have been bought out just in different ways from Joe Biden. They're out of touch with minority issues. They're out of touch with the anti-war issue because they keep aiding and abetting these capitalist wars. And ultimately, our party has the answers on these issues, and we're not bought out by corporate interests like the Democratic Party is. So Bernie Sanders can say socialism all he wants. Socialism is as socialism does. He, Joe Biden, all the rest of them, whichever one, whichever joker they pick out of the pack, is going to be advancing the same corporatist agenda. While we have an agenda to actually bring power back to our communities, we have an agenda to empower minority communities, we have an agenda to take money out of politics, which is part of the problem, why everyone's looking at this farce of a democratic primary, because they're trained to by money interests. We as a party are going to take back the agenda for the people, so that the people have control over democracy, and we're going to do that in part through democratic reform, so we aren't stuck looking at people like Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders like they're the only choices. We are going to have proportional representation. We're going to have instant runoff voting. We are going to have open debates. We're going to have a system where people feel like they have more choices because they deserve choices in a true democratic democracy. Let's stop raising these people up on a pedestal and asking how are we going to run against them and start asking how are we going to move this country forward for true justice for all Americans. Okay, up next I have Elise, and then I have Don on stack. Um, we have time for about two to three more questions, and I'll have you on stack in case we have more time. And then Nathan as well. Um, so go ahead, Elise. Okay, sure. Um, so my question kind of takes us to an imagination place that you are finishing the first hundred days of your presidency. And I want to know, as the media will ask you, what is your most important policy that will come forward in your first 100 days? It's the end of your first 100 days. What are you most proud of accomplishment, accomplishing as our president of the United States? Thank you. You've got to do it. It's going to be real. That's right. That's right. Uh, I've uh, already issued a press release about uh, what I plan to do one hour after I get inaugurated. And that's uh, order the uh, DEA to uh, lower the ranking of marijuana from a class one drug to a class three drug uh, as a first step to uh, end the war on drugs. Uh, I, I would hope that this is a that, uh, we could have some relative uh, strong reduction in, in uh, soldiers overseas, uh, especially Iran, uh, or Iraq, not Iran just yet, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan as well as uh, 
I have a plan to uh, shutter a lot of the overseas military bases, which will reduce our military spending. And uh, focusing primarily on ending all wars, I think, would be my first 100 days. The second 100 days would be to start pushing for that Medicare for all. The, the third 100 days would be the $25 an hour minimum wage. And uh, hopefully, beginning my second second year of my first term, we would be starting work on the uh, renewable infrastructure program that I have uh, set up to repower the communities, lower the uh, extension of our electrical grid, uh, make it more locally sourced, uh, creating more jobs for local communities, and reinvesting in those communities where we can uh, adopt uh, renewable energy generations. Uh, I think that's, I mean, honestly, that's the best thing I can do would be, you know, to end all the wars. And I, I think that that's my blueprint for the first 100 days. This is hypothetical, let's realize, but if it happened, my first priority would be to consolidate the movement as an organization that got us elected, because the whole power structure, global, would be against us. Second thing I do is start get my pen out and start repealing and reversing a lot of the administrative actions by Trump and also Obama, things like the Trump administration uh, doing away with the consent decrees for Ferguson and Baltimore, these other police departments, for defunding the monitoring of white nationalist terrorists and put the resources back into that. There's a whole slew of environmental uh, policies that Trump has put in there that need to be repealed. And then I go to Congress and say, look, I got a mandate. Green New Deal, Economic Bill of Rights, Nuclear Disarmament, we got to get to work on that. And that movement, you know, we'd be organizing that movement to put the pressure on Congress. And basically the message would be, you play ball with the mandate, or in two years, if you're a member of Congress, uh, you may not be reelected because the people want change. There's some issues that we will be moving substantially on. There's some that I hope that we will get, get some definite clarity on just in the first 100 days. Our campaign is advancing a People of Color Bill of Rights, and that includes making sure that rights in this country are, in effect, administered equally, regardless of which community you come from, including access to justice. We recognize that people of color are being funneled through an educational system that monetizes them and puts them through a mass incarceration system through the school to prison pipeline that also monetizes them. We're going to put that to an end. We're going to have equal access to justice by revamping the the justice system in this country, and by having a more robust public defender system. But in the first hundred days, I have to turn to environmental protection, because this is an area that's been crucial here. The Trump administration, their enforcement has gone down to a 10-year low. In those first three months, in that first 100 days, we are going to ramp up environmental protection, because this is something the presidential branch, the executive branch, can do. It's a matter of enforcement. It's a matter of justice for the environment. And that's what something Americans are going to see quite visibly. We are going to bring an end to the war on drugs. We're going to bring an end to our war abroad in terms of the engagements that we have as a country allowed to happen under an imperial presidency. We saw under Obama a drone war taking place in other parts of the world. We've, saw all, we've seen all kinds of abusive tactics. We're going to bring an end to all of those engagements across the world. And we're going to have the Justice Department that will be working over time in those first three months to prosecute the genocides taking place on our streets on the part of law enforcement. We're going to bring these people to justice. We're going to 
of our communities and have a genuine sense of ownership in our communities. So in the first hundred days, we're going to have a country where disenfranchised people, where minority communities suddenly feel like America is turning towards the better for them and for their futures. We're going to have a country that, that brings an end to the fear that we have all across this country engaged in the sphere that we have spread amongst minority communities and immigrant communities. We, of course, are going to close all those concentration camps. We're going to move towards open borders as much as the executive branch can do that. Because we have problems cross borders, but we don't let people cross borders. We have to treat people as human and the planet as living. All right. Okay, well, I'm just bad. I, I, I don't really like this question. I think it's kind of it's kind of irresponsible to take this question seriously because I don't want to I don't want our candidate to get into the election to be like legitimizing a phony election and letting letting the Democrats and the Republicans and their their billionaire puppet masters like pretend that they're having a real election because they allow third party candidates like in sort of you know so I. I, I think it's very important to 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 mention to keep saying that it's a, a phony election and we're protesting against it. And also, if you know, if they did if they did let one of us, me or someone or another third party candidate or Green Party candidate into the presidency, would we even would I even want to be president? Like like go and be the the leader of the empire because there's going to be the whole the whole you know, Congress, are they going to be green too? No, if, it's, if you're talking about just the president, there's the whole, like, there's a whole, there's the, the military, there's like a whole a whole systems of, of government and, and oppression. But having said that, if I, if I got in, I would announce that um, we're in a transitional <coughs> period that the United States is going to be shut down and yeah. start negotiations with with organizations of, of black people and indigenous yeah. people for how we can turn over the return the sovereignty over the land to the indigenous people and turn over all the resources and power to, to black and indigenous people and um, I would go around to prisons and tell them I am the president let everybody out the, the <laughs> Okay, Don, you are up. Three points. First one, very simply. Last night, I spent most of the time with what I was talking about, explaining that clean energy is not really clean. And then I was studiously avoided by virtually every other person on the panel. I would like a simple answer. Do you believe that clean energy is actually clean? Second point, when we asked this morning about what would we do about a Green who was elected on a peace platform and supported war, I don't remember any specific answers. Could you give some specific answers about what the Green Party should do when a Green candidate elected violates the most basic principles of the Green Party? Third, uh, uh, concerning the uh, question on mass shootings this morning, most answers were either vague or Democratic Party-like answers, like I would support um, more bans on assault weapons. And there were not answers in terms of the violence that permeates every aspect of American society. So I'm not asking so much about that, that would be nice to answer that, but if you were the representative of the Green Party, 
before the national press, and the press gives you an answer, gives you a question that leads you into giving a Democratic Party answer. How would you do a better job of giving an answer that's not like the Democratic Party, but advocating a revolutionary total transformation of U.S. society? Well, I think the way you bring the masses of people into a movement is with concrete demands that they can get behind. You don't tell them revolution is the solution and and just give them a bunch of rhetoric. So I think uh, I'm going to go to the three questions you raised and just concretely answer them. Clean energy, by definition, is clean. Now, can it be done? Yes. You mentioned mining last year, uh, last night, and the uh, minerals needed. We can do mining with restoration of the land after. That's definitely possible. We can do manufacturing at zero waste. It's how you do it. And so that, I would say, we've got to go with clean energy. Uh, Concretely, what do you do when a green candidate supports a capitalist war? You withdraw the Greens' support for them. Concretely, you're not a Green anymore if they persist in that policy. They're, they got a mandate from our membership and they, it should be withdrawn. And the mass shootings uh, didn't get time to get to this point, but we have to realize that a majority, the largest proportion of these mass shooters come out of the military. This is blowback for imperialism. People come back emotionally damaged. And these people need help, and we need to stop putting people in those kinds of situations. Uh, I agree with Dennis. A lot of people get in the military, you know, they want to contribute. They want to do something positive. They don't understand the politics and, you know, what's going on. Sometimes they find out when they get there. My generation found out in Vietnam. I guess Dennis has found out in the Middle East. Uh, but these people should be helped before they, you know, they take out whatever demons are inside of them they brought back with them on the rest of us in these mass shootings. So I think that's a piece of the answer to the mass shootings. Very briefly, we were seeking clean energy and as a society and as a party we're moving towards energy that is going to remove that carbon footprint, that's going to move that negative impact on the environment and that is our goal and we are moving towards technologies that will ever increase that. That is a point behind clean energy. When you have somebody who supports things that are against our values, you encourage them to come back. You dialogue with them, you have conversation with them. But if that fails, you then have to call them out and you may have to cut them off. Gun control. When we're talking about violence in our country, we have, to, we have to acknowledge that our country has a history and a tradition of violence. And we have to acknowledge that these incidents that are happening, there's disproportionate representation of white males in that, in that violence. This homegrown terrorism, which we are not acknowledging in this country, rooted in white supremacy, we have to acknowledge that and its roots in our culture. And we have to acknowledge the fact that it is deeply connected to violence against women, deeply connected to violence against indigenous peoples, which was how this country started, and deeply connected to violence against people of color. And how do we address that? We disempower all that violence by putting in place laws to deal with hate crimes, putting in place laws to deal with the inequalities, and we empower those communities. We empower women. We empower indigenous 
indigenous community. We empower people of color. We give them the control over the many ways in which we together will uplift every part of this country. And we put forward a platform, our campaign, to do exactly that. Whether it's education or it's fracking causing earthquakes in communities that people feel are rightfully in their minds forgotten. Because you live in the inner city, you have to deal with pollution in your backyard or lack of health care resources or lack of adequate education. No. We are uplifting an entire country together. And when we educate minority communities and do so up to appropriate standards, we're doing so so they can participate fully in our democracy and be recognized. We have to recognize the roots of violence are disenfranchisement. The roots of violence are the social and the racial inequalities in this country. And we will not attack those until we as a party give the power back to the people by reshaping and reforming our democracy. On clean energy, like obviously there are degrees of how dirty energy is, and we need to keep working towards having cleaner energy and, and hopefully, like eventually having totally clean energy. But I, I think to me the important point about this country, about this question, is that um, there is that um, environmental destruction and global warming and pollution is caused by by monopoly capitalist corporations who, who um, produce and overproduce um, based on greed, on trying to make profits, and they don't care about the destruction that they're causing. Or, and, and they try to blame ordinary people and say that the problem is overpopulation and ordinary poor people eating. And that's, that's not the problem, that's a diversion. And when the billionaires and corporations say that, they even start to do things to try to kill people to address overpopulation. That isn't the problem. The problem is the corporations, and we need, we need to have a, a planned economy where um, production doesn't cause pollution, or we take into consideration what, what the production does and what the needs actually are and try not to cause destruction. And about the green capital, green can, um, candidates or, or politicians, elected politicians supporting capitalist wars, if, if a Green Party person is in office in the United States and is supporting a capitalist war, um, regardless of what the other Greens are doing, I will be out there protesting against them. Already last year when, when Howie Hawkins was running for governor of New York and he organized, a, a, he was listed as a sponsor of a, a forum supporting the regime change against, against Syria, I went and protested the forum and put out an article telling people not to vote for Howie, so I'm already doing that. And, um, so I guess I don't have time to answer the question about the mess you but I don't think I gave a Democrat party answer. I think I know what you're talking about, Don, when you said there's no such thing as clean energy, because usually the clean energy is used to describe nuclear energy or coal energy or gas, natural gas energy. Uh, renewable energy is really the only way to move forward to uh, reverse the climate change issues that we're facing, as well as empowering the communities as far as I see. You know, within 50 miles of where I live, there are three ecological damage sites. Uh, we've seen more ecological warfare in Appalachia than we've seen any place else in the world. Blair Mountain, which is about 25 miles southeast of me, their hillside was littered with lead when coal miners protested against uh, unfair wages and, uh, during uh, World War I. Federals came in and basically littered the, the whole hillside with lead, so nothing, virtually nothing grows there on Blair Mountain. Wow. Uh, 
we've seen ecological devastation throughout the mountaintops of, of West Virginia and the coal fields of Kentucky, and it's starting to happen in Ohio with the, the fracking up toward the north, and they're still trying to focus on bringing more coal jobs down to where I live. Uh, and renewable energy is the only way to go. The clean energy is no such Honestly, I, I believe you, Don, there's no such thing as clean energy. It, 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 the only way it's clean is that it's renewable. Uh, Anti-war candidates, yes. We should bring them to our bosom and explain to them why we are anti-war. <laughs> and if they still want to bite us on that, then we basically have to, to cut them loose. I mean, that, that, that's a platform that is a part of this party, and if uh, somebody decides that they want to be green and be war, they can't be green. And lastly, on the gun control issue, uh, it, it's an issue that's near to me. Uh, I own a couple guns myself. Uh, me too. Because that's my right. Yeah. I believe the biggest issue, uh, other than uh, allowing people to own uh, weapons of war, we don't allow them to own grenades or rocket launchers, education. That's the bottom line. We need to educate people on. I'm sorry. All right, we have time for one more question, and that actually is Nathan. He's already on the sheet, so he's our last question. Then we're going to move into the uh, one-minute final statement. So, go ahead. Can you use the mic? The live stream can't yes. hear the question. Absolutely. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Hello. 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 It's a little bit. Of, maybe it's a little bit of a a boring question to, to finish up with, but. I want to hear from you, from each of you, almost like, what is your your management philosophy? Because a, a president is a manager, and the biggest organization that the human race has ever put together is the federal government. And the president is the manager of that organization. I want to hear that you understand what that organization is, how it functions, how it's effed up, okay, how it's top down, we got this unitary theory of, of the executive, right, and how you're going to transform that office when you get there so that it works for the people and not for the, you know, for the elite. You know what I'm saying? You know, I want, to, I want to hear how you run an organization and how you transform that organization into a, a small d democratic organization. That is responsive to the people's needs. So thank you for that question to start with. I want to draw some clear distinctions. What you've seen from the Trump administration lately is what I like to call the imperial presidency. That term's been used in a number of contexts before. Basically, the way that Trump has been operating, his management style is pick the worst people who support the most profitable ideas. You have people like Betsy DeVos, who understands nothing about education other than the fact that she wants to monetize children through charter schools. So we're going to do things very, very different. We're going to pick the most qualified people. We're going to trust those most qualified people, but we're going to manage in a way that recognizes the values, the democratic values, the values of bringing justice to underserved communities, the values of providing the best benefit to people in this country without, without providing a means for corporatist profit. That's how we're going to manage things. We're going to pick people who genuinely understand the issues that they are advancing in each of the bureaus. We're going to pick people who work together in a team consensus model, which is a very green 
model to try to create a country that is going to, in every way, shape, or form, have a holistic and comprehensive approach to revitalizing our democracy, to revitalizing education, healthcare, making a greener planet through the things we do here in the U.S., but also diplomatically abroad. We are going to change our approach to the way we connect with other countries, no longer through war and through military conflict, but by standing shoulder to shoulder to make sure that we work together on solutions that will advance the planet and make this planet more green and more livable. We are going to take an approach that is solution and results oriented, but from the very beginning will involve people who actually understand the portfolios, who have a clear strategy for advancing our goals and our values through those portfolios and are responsive not only to our administration, but responsive to the public. Because that's one of the things we witnessed in the Trump administration, people like Betsy DeVos marching into schools, giving speeches, and being roundly booed by people because her whole reason for being, her whole platform is disenfranchising people and disenfranchising communities. That disconnect has to end. We're moving from the imperial presidency to the protective presidency, one that's going to ramp up our enforcement in areas such as the EPA, and one that's going to have a targeted approach to making sure that we resolve these outstanding issues of inequity and justice in our country. All right. I tend to start from the, the key values. I'm very focused on, on the key values, and, and then I like, I like to have a consensus-seeking process. I like open communication, and um, you know, while, while focusing on the key values, we're like trying to, to work together and, and um, not like sneak around and scheme behind each other, like get the problems out in the open and discuss them. And, I don't know, maybe that isn't the best kind of way for a manager to be, but that's how that's how I am. And as I said, when if, if you know my goal for the president is is to turn over the power to um, to organizations of working class African and indigenous people, like to have so we can have justice and give them back their resources that we've stolen and turn over the power to somebody who will do a better job running things and not destroy the world like like white power has just almost destroyed the world already. Well, that'd be me. Well. Uh, back in 1995, uh, when I was still very active with the Boy Scouts, uh, I became the scoutmaster of a junior leader training camp. Uh, it was a week-long course. Uh, the first year they gave me a handbook. The second year I rewrote the handbook. Uh, and they followed that handbook for three years after that. So I not only know how to lead, but I can train leaders as well. Uh, but my leadership uh, style is uh, I try to be hands-off if I can. Uh, I'm always concerned because I feel responsibility whenever I'm a leader of the whole project, no matter who's handling what. I hope to appoint uh, people who can handle the job well, uh, efficiently, as well as... Uh, taking in uh, consideration the needs of the people as opposed to the needs of the lobbyists or the needs of uh, corporations. Uh, I had actually thought about this for a long time knowing that the, the power of the presidency really relies in the, in the cabinet. Uh, I started to, before I made the announcement that I was going to run for president, I started thinking about filling my cabinet because I know odds are that I'm not going to get there, but if I do have do have the opportunity to get there. I want to get there with a team that I know can do the job as well as are really interested in what's going on with the departments that they are heading. So uh, I do have a list here of about 20 names, but I'll, I'll just give you two of them so you can uh, do
do a little bit of research and see if I'm on my mark. Uh, for the Attorney General, I am looking to uh, probably bring in Brian Stevenson. Yay! And, uh, for EPA Secretary, I would like to see Dr. Robert Bullard as the head of the EPA. Uh, of those of you who don't know, he's been working outside of government with the EPA for decades trying to improve the standards of the EPA for drinking water as well as uh, other chemical contaminants in the environment. Okay. You just didn't get that out of my name. No. We just met. We'll bring our names up after. Well, I'm trying to execute my man of the philosophy in my campaign. First thing is I try to set a positive, uplifting tone. We're all in this together, and I've told my campaign, and you know, really pushing this as an emphasis, and it was a condition upon which I accepted this draft Howie thing, is that we got to stop fighting the old faction wars in the Green Party, and don't start any new ones. Because we're all in this together. And the enemy is not in the Green Party. Yes, in sir. This room. It's the power structure of the United States. Uh, I try to appoint competent people, listen to them, and just try to get in the big decisions that really matter and delegate as much as possible. And let me, in the time I have remaining, uh, clarify that I did not sponsor a meeting to sponsor regime change in Syria. I sponsored a meeting of a report by Anand Gopal, a very courageous journalist who's been into Syria un without authorization of the regime to find out what, the, what happened to the democratic revolution. He's been reporting on that. That meeting was against U.S. intervention, and it was pro-democracy, and the people fighting oppression from all sides. There are two counter-revolutions, Assad's and the Islamists. And there's a popular movement that is struggling to survive. And in a subsequent report that uh, Anand Gopal gave at the Socialism 2019 conference, he reported on one of those revolutionaries, and he said, when it started, we thought there was an international community that would at least express solidarity with us. And what we found out is there's only international imperialism coming at us from all directions, so we're on our own. And that's really a sad commentary on what's going on in Syria and how the so-called anti-imperialist left has not shown solidarity for the people fighting for their rights and is sided with oppressive states like Assad versus the U.S. on the theory that the enemy, my enemy, is necessarily my friend which is not necessarily the case. All right. Okay, we are going to move on to the closing statements. They each give one minute apiece, and we're going to start over here with Mr. Rold. All right, here you are. Okay, well, um, I, I am the anti-war candidate. I've been an anti-war activist since, um, since 2001. I'm, I'm currently working with, with Cindy Sheehan, planning the Rage Against the War Machine protest in D.C. on October 11th and an anti-imperialist revolution summit at conference on October 12th. Um, I've worked with, with um, UNAC, ANSWER, International Action Center, um, all the, a lot of all the anti-war coalitions, and um, on the Chicago Socialism conference, conference that Howie just mentioned, there was just an expose about this this um, imperialist so-called socialist conference in 
and the gray zone by Max Blumenthal and Ben Morton and Nancy Paul, who um, how he cited is funded by the State Department, and that conference and his work is is like working with the U.S. to try to overthrow Syria and other anti-imperialist governments. Uh, closing comments. So, uh, my platform is fairly simple. Uh, I've explained it Medicare for all, uh, $25 an hour minimum wage, and I've explained the end of all wars, uh, ending all wars. But the, the fourth one I really haven't elaborated much on is uh, rebuilding our infrastructure in a renewable manner. Uh, for example, just I know for a fact that 29 dams are along the Ohio River. Of those 29 dams, only 17 generate electricity. Of those 17, only three of them generate electricity beyond the locks and dams. So we can easily retrofit the rivers with uh, hydrokinetic turbines that just retrofit either along dams or along bridges and generate electricity for those communities. Uh, that using in a combination with uh, tile uh, energy generation, solar and wind, we can create small energy generations in small communities, powering those communities, providing employment for those communities, and within five years, those communities can begin lowering their taxes because they're getting money, income, from those renewable energy sources. Well, 2020 will be all about Trump. Trump is going to tweet his lies and insults to corporate media coverage. Democrats will respond, we're not Trump. But not Trump is not enough. People need a positive message, and that's what but in all likelihood, we're going to be under the radar, the media radar, and the public attention. We're dealing with this anybody but Trump thing. So what we got to focus on is building our organization, our organizing skills, our lists. When we canvass, we need to keep the names and communicate with those people going forward and build the party. We need to be ready in 2020 because... May have said here, I've said it a lot of times. If the Democrats win, they're going to disappoint. And if they lose, they can't do anything. And either way, the Green Party's got to be ready to step up, fill the political vacuum for progressive solutions to the life and death issues that we face. We need a loud and clear voice for getting our message out and for building our party. It doesn't get louder than this loud boy from Jersey. we got a limited amount of time to turn things around. They say 12, but it's likely less. And so what we need is a revitalized youthful energy in our party to tackle 2020 and create new leaders beyond. So just do our Sea Greens lead campaign. We need a new generation moving this forward. And we need a global approach and not just a left-wing version of an American exceptionalist approach. We have been advancing this all along. And from our campaign, others have kind of taken the lead from us. But as the old saying goes, imitations are serious form of flattery, but imitations are still fakes. Tell that to the Democrats trying to co-opt our Green New Deal. Yeah. We have supporting well, yeah. equality opportunity, equality in education, in health care, and in justice. We're supporting a, a New Deal, a New Deal for our people of color in this country through the People's uh, People of Color Bill of Rights. We have been supporting global justice solutions for all. We're supporting building bridges and breaking barriers. That's our slogan as a campaign. We need to repair old wounds through reparations and through a reparative process with the indigenous people in this country. And we need to lift up all Americans for lifting up this country as a whole. We're going to do that in 2020, and we're going to do that beyond. All right. All right.
everybody a huge round of applause.